Good morning, Redemption. Happy New Year. My name is Tim Morrow. I'm a member here. And today's reading is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word for us today. Morning again, and as we get ready to look to, to God's word and to consider who we are, if you would join me in prayer. God, this first day of the year, we pray that you would help us to begin the year by reflecting on who we are in your Son, Jesus Christ. I trust all of us have a flurry of details, circumstances, burdens, weighing us down in, in a number of ways and causing concerns and confusion. But I pray that this morning you would use your word and even this time together now to help us to see with clear spiritual eyes uh, who we now are. And God, that we would, we would do everything from, from this day on, in every aspect and area of our life, our church, that we would do everything from this sense of who you have made us to be. And God, we pray that these truths would carry us. In Jesus' name, amen. Begin with the start of a new year, a transition to a new building in a new community, uh, with also quite a few new people even worshiping, worshiping with us as of late. I thought it'd be helpful for us to begin the year here by just doing a brief series on our vision and our values. Uh, it's going to be a three-part, three-week series, and today we're going to begin the series again by considering who we are. Uh, next week, we will look at what we do in the following week, which will be our first Sunday in the new building. Uh, we'll, we'll consider how we do it, which basically is, is speaking to the, the spiritual quality of our church and its life together. These days, the identity of the church and the identity of Christians in general uh, has come under extreme scrutiny. A global pandemic has questioned our commitment to gather on a weekly basis. It's also sped up the rise of technology in many areas and has uh, furthered this movement of so-called online churches, live streams, podcasts, and these things. Uh, many societal pressures have tempted churches to divide, often along political lines. Uh, shifting perspectives on gender and marriage have confused, in many ways, the relationship between men and women in the church, which has then not been helped by uh, a, a large number of uh, abusive uh, leadership examples that have surfaced in the life of the church. Terms like evangelical have evolved in change, sometimes in confusing, unhelpful ways, and skepticism toward the foundational truths of the Christian faith have led some to altogether reconsider those truths. For these reasons and, and more, 
It is more important than ever to know who we are. Because who we are, both as individual Christians and together as the body of Christ, will, of course, drive and it will define everything else, what we do and how we do it. So at Redemption, we we talk about this often. We say it often. We are a gospel-centered family of disciples. This is how we talk about who we are, and I expect it always will be. And as you might expect, each of these words has been carefully chosen. And so what I want to do for the rest of this sermon this morning is simply to unpack this one sentence and, and look with you to Scripture to see how it is really given to us even by God. It, it, it's, a, it's our way of talking about what God has revealed in his word. And so first, I want to focus on what it means to be gospel-centered. This means that our identity revolves around one message, and that message is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Christians are always talking about the gospel, but at times it can be a little unclear what that gospel actually is. Uh, Depending on who you talk to, it might be a simple explanation of how we can be forgiven for our sins. Uh, We have to repent and believe in Jesus. That is the gospel. Or to some, it might be a particular emphasis on one of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, like justification, for instance. Sinners are justified, made righteous by grace alone and not by works. And some would say, that is the gospel. Now, certainly, uh, both of these things are in view in the message of the gospel and very relevant to it. But on their own, they are not sufficient for making sense of this message and all that it means. In the ancient world, gospels were actually a fairly common mode of communication. A gospel was simply an announcement of good news from a king to his people. So in modern days, this would be the equivalent to a really happy press briefing from the president. Imagine President Biden gets up to this podium. He says, hey, good news. No more inflation. Interest rates are 2% again. This is good news, right? That's kind of the idea. These are hist- there are historical records even of gospels being sent to announce, for example, hey, we've won the battle. Our troops are coming home. Uh, or to announce uh, a royal son has been born as the heir to the throne. This tells us something very important about Gospels in general, which really helps us to make sense of this Gospel in particular. Namely, this Gospel is a message from a king, and it is a message about this king. Back in 2019, right when we started planting redemption, we went through a series through the Gospel of Mark, and that was entitled, The King They Least Expected. That book begins with a description of the book. Mark says, here's what this is, basically, in verse 1. And he calls that book, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very first thing we ever read about Jesus doing, just 14 verses later in Mark, is this. It says, now after John, that is John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, it says, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says, repent and believe in the gospel. So I want you to see the gospel is a message from heaven about the kingdom of God here on earth. It's here. It's at hand. 
And we're supposed to repent and believe that message in some way. Well, throughout the rest of Mark, we see one story after another in which Jesus constantly is breaking people's categories and expectations because he keeps talking as though he is this king and there's this kingdom, and no one gets it. They don't understand it until eventually they have him crucified, basically for blasphemy. And when they kill him, the Romans even mock him for this message of his by putting a sign above his head which read, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. In other words, if you want to challenge the emperor Caesar, if you want to talk about some kingdom that you're raising up, here's what is going to happen to you in our kingdom. We're going to nail you to this cross very publicly, very brutally, a very humiliating way. And then, of course, he rises from the dead to prove that, yes, he is, in fact, this heavenly king that he claimed to be. And then in Matthew, he tells his disciples after rising that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That is spoken like a true king. So first, I want us to see the gospel is not just some philosophy. It's not just some new approach for how to live our best life. The gospel is a word-based message about what God has done to conquer sin and to reestablish his rule and his reign and his authority over all of creation. Namely, what he has done is he has sent his son to die on a bloody cross in our place for our sins and to rise again in victory and then to ascend into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of his father, presumably on a throne, ruling and reigning over all things as an eternal king. Paul summarizes the gospel very helpfully in 1 Corinthians 15, and I want you to notice the message he relays here is a collection of historical truth claims about the man, Jesus Christ. He says this, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. There's a lot at stake in this gospel and our relationship to it. He continues, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Paul tells us right here, this is most important. I delivered this to you of first importance, what I also received, and here it is, here's the message, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. On the third day, uh, and, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, he says, though some have fallen asleep. And the point of that last part is, listen, go talk to these people. They saw it. So the gospel is a message about what God has done to redeem us, and to restore all things. It is the message of his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his glorious ascension, his eventual return. I want you to picture this resurrected King Jesus, even today, even right now, this morning, seated on the throne of heaven, ruling as king of all, interceding for all those who believe in him here on earth. To tell someone the gospel is meant to tell them that. 
It's to announce that this is the greatest, most ultimate good news that they all, we all desperately need. King Jesus has come. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended to heaven, as the Nicene Creed tells us, for us and for our salvation. This is the good news. This message is the power of God unto salvation, and it is the only message that redeems those who believe it from eternal judgment. And that last part is really important. It's the only message. So when we say we are gospel-centered, what we mean is that this message is not just one of a few messages, you know, that we're kind of excited about. No, this message is the message that defines who we are. It is the gravitational center of our lives. Everything else that we say and we do revolves around it. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. Like, I didn't have a long list of rhetorical elo- eloquence and all these things. He says, I decided, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so like Paul, we need this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified to be at the very center of our lives. And so simply, I want you to consider this morning with me, what message is at the center of your life. We live in a world that's filled with messages, far more so even than previous generations. Um, We should all live minimally. That's the key, right? Just simplify your life. That's the key to the good life. Or we should all be healthy, more healthy. Eat right, take care of yourself. That's the key to a good life. Or we should be true to ourselves, express outwardly what we feel inwardly. That is the key to the good life, or we need to buy that next thing that everyone wants, that will be the key to the good life. We're constantly looking for a story, for a message that will fulfill and redeem us, something that will right all of our wrongs that we've experienced or done, something that will set us on the right course. But if someone were to observe your life, if they just watched as you carry out your daily rhythms even, what message would they assume was at the center of your life? What truths seem to drive you and determine your priorities more so than anything else? What kind of values are you willing to make even incredible sacrifices to pursue? What is the thing you keep coming back to time and time again in good times and in bad? If you're not a Christian, if you don't identify as a follower of Jesus this morning, I want to ask, could it be that the message at the center of your life is in some way lacking? Could it be that no matter how hard you try to put all these pieces together, it just never seems to work, it never seems to deliver? Could it be that the message at the center of your life is in some way designed to maintain this facade that you're fine, you're an upright person, And the truth is, you're just not. You're you're flawed. You're a finite person with a higher regard for yourself than for God and with many personal hurts and hang-ups just like the rest of us. 
Could it be that this gospel of Jesus Christ is the message you really need? Could it be that this good news is true? That there is deep, profound, eternal forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation in Christ. And not only that, is not only is it true, but it is true for you. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to explore this gospel with you. And let me say this too. We have sincerely no agenda and no obligation outside of that. We are just sincerely convinced that this message is as powerful as the word says that it is. And if you are a Christian, I, I want us to consider this morning, I want to ask you, is the message of this resurrected King Jesus really the message that the rest of your life revolves around? Do we desperately need the blood that he shed for the forgiveness of our sins? Do we delight in and marvel at his holiness, or are we still trying to prove our own are we eager to forgive others and to extend grace even when it's painful, even when it's costly, because that's precisely what God has done for us in Christ? When a member of this church approaches you with a difficult, life-shaking problem and asks for your help, is this the message that we are pointing them to? Or do we have long lists of other good advice and messages worth trying out? Do we long? for this resurrected king to return so that we can enjoy perfect eternal life and intimacy with him. Let's be a people whose identity revolves around one message, this good news of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Now, you maybe notice these next two points are out of order, and that kind of thing usually bugs me, but... Um, in this case, you frankly won't be able to make sense of what a family of disciples is unless you first know what it means to be a disciple. And so next, we're going to talk about this. Part of our identity is we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means we are followers of this resurrected king. His life has intersected with ours, okay? Now, a disciple is simply a follower or student of a religious teacher. The word is rooted in the, in the practice of a Jewish, uh, be, being a Jewish rabbi, which Jesus was. Rabbis are Jewish teachers, and their followers were called disciples like Jesus and his disciples. But this King Jesus had a very unique approach, very unique approach, to this whole rabbi-disciple relationship. He says it this way in, in Matthew 16, we read, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, some translations render that, if anyone would be my disciple, he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the claim that the gospel makes on the lives of those who follow this King Jesus. The appropriate response to this good news of the gospel is to follow him. And in context, Jesus is saying this, by the way, as he is on the way to his cross, 
In other words, you might read what he's saying as this, as if he's saying, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me to mine. A cross, of course, is a Roman tool of execution for the capital punishment of criminals. And so, in, again, in context, to take up our cross means to own our sin, to take responsibility for the ways we've rebelled against God, is to face the just penalty that we deserve. We must own our guilt before a holy God. Face it. And then with our cross on our shoulder, we follow this Jesus to his cross where he conquers our sin for us. All of this is a mandatory prerequisite to being a disciple. No one will ever truly follow Jesus unless they repent of their sins and rely on his grace. We receive this free gift of salvation that only he could offer. So to be a disciple then, we must forsake our former earthly identities. This is what it means to deny ourselves and identify ourselves instead as his followers. This means we are not entitled to create our own identities or to define what is right or good or wrong for ourselves as disciples more than anything else. We identify as redeemed sinners who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We have gone from hating God and loving our sin to loving God and hating our sin. And in that very moment, when we first believe this good news of, of the resurrected King Jesus, we are made new. All of our sin is forgiven. We are justified. God's Spirit comes to dwell in us. God the Father comes to see us now as if we are no different than his sinless, resurrected son, because in a very real and spiritual sense, we are no different than his resurrected son. We have been made one with him by faith. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, okay, I've heard a lot of things about Jesus in my life, but I have never heard this. Uh, that is attractive. Uh, I want that identity. There are, here are your two next steps. First, repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an invisible spiritual thing that can only happen in you by the power of God. Uh, it, 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 we are meant to discern if it's happened, walk with you in it, time will tell, but that's your first step. Repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And next, link your life with others who will help you to follow this King Jesus in all of life. And the way God has ordained for us to do that in the scriptures is through baptism and church membership. We're going to talk more about that later today and in the, in the coming weeks. These are the first steps that God calls all of his people to in this lifelong pursuit of following Jesus as his disciple. I want to point out, none of this, this discipling, discipleship stuff, 
is about moving beyond the truth of the gospel to bigger and better, more like varsity things. There are no bigger and better things than this gospel. A faithful life of discipleship is about God taking the truth of the gospel then deeper and further into the dark and sinful corners of our lives until, as Paul says, we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the real aim in our following Jesus, to attain to the full measure and stature of him. With this in mind, I want us just to consider who are you following? Who are you following? Consider the most significant influences in your life. Consider the sources of information you give the most weight to. Consider the people you most admire and want to emulate or become like. Who are they? What is it that you admire about them? In what ways do you want to become like them? And where does this resurrected God-man fit into this whole equation? Church, do we, do we relish the opportunity to sit down, to read the story of his life and ministry in one of the Gospels, just to draw near to him? When you're at the end of your rope and you just don't have what it takes, do you cry out to him? As you consider what success looks like in your life, do you measure that in relation to his life or to someone else? When you're disappointed or defeated by your own sin tendencies, is he the one you look to for comfort? To the church, there are many, many people, many groups, many trends that we could all follow. But let's be a people defined by our following the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, we are a gospel-centered family of disciples and By this we mean that we are a spiritual family, not just a group of individuals. Now now this is where our vision may sound a bit different or at least maybe more explicit than some churches. Uh, When we say gospel-centered family of disciples, we're not just using that word family as a happy way to describe, you know, sort of how our church should feel. Like we're all one big happy family at Redemption Church. That's not the idea. In a real and spiritual way, our lives have been linked together. We, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God really is a heavenly father. Uh, he, he really has sent us his eternal son. And by faith in him, we really have become the children of God as well. Our lives really are united as brothers and sisters in this new heavenly family. Spiritually speaking, this is just how the New Testament describes the fellowship that's shared in churches like ours. Uh, We believe our church is part of this today. We believe our church exists by the grace of God to carry on this family, this spiritual family on earth for generations to come. Uh, That is, we don't just see our church or, or any other church like ours as nonprofits that do the work of Christ. Uh, We see them being part of the very reason that Christ has come to begin with and even the result of his finished work on the cross. He himself has promised in Matthew 16 that he would build his 
church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. In Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul prays, To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And, and again, he is writing that to a particular local church, much like ours. And so with this in mind, for each of us, part of our identity, an important part of who we are, is now bound up together with one another. We're not just individual Christians. If anything, we've had to lay aside our former life of sin, which is marked by self-absorption and kind of isolation from accountability and love relationships with others. We have now been taking responsibility for one another. We are now each one member of this unified body. And that is true in a universal sense with every Christian, and it is also true here in a particular, specific sense as a part of this church. The author that I really appreciate, Jonathan Lehman, says it this way. We basically believe that the universal church is also local. It's a real thing. It actually exists in real churches like ours. This is why we're so passionate about seeing churches built up, made healthy, collaborating, multiplying. This is all part, we trust, of God's plan of redemption, and it's an important part of who we are as well. Where do we see this idea in the New Testament? The answer is basically everywhere we look. Uh, for example, after Jesus promised to build his church in Matthew 16, just two chapters later, he gives his disciples instructions for how to address sin issues that will arise in, within their community down the road. And part of that instruction, he says, first, go and address it with them privately. Bring another, if they don't listen, bring another person. If they still don't listen, he says, tell it to the church. I want you just, let's think about that. In other words, this church he just promised to build two chapters ago actually exists here on earth, apparently. It's a real community that real sin issues can be brought to. And notice, he just assumes that every one of these disciples he's been walking with will be part of one of these churches that a sin issue could be brought to, not just in some hypothetical spiritual way, but with real implications for everyday life in a real and practical way. We saw this, this year has been incredible to see these things in Scripture. Earlier this year in our series on Abraham, we saw that God has always been at work to raise up a covenant family. And how all the Bible, all the way back from the story of Israel and the Old Testament, has been pointing us to this glorious truth of Christ and his church. We saw it in our series through Galatians. Now that Christ has come, we've been delivered out of the present evil age and into God's heavenly family by grace alone, through faith alone. Paul even wrote to that church in Galatia saying, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, our earthly identities no longer define us in the way they once did. We are now defined by Christ and because we have this union with him, our identities are all bound up together as if we are all one in him. First Corinthians, Paul describes how this actual shared identity works out with this idea of the body of Christ, which is what these churches are. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice 
together. And listen to this. He says, now you, this whole church that I'm writing to, you are the body of Christ. And individually, he says, each one of you on your own are members of it. This is just the New Testament vision of what a local church is. And and it wasn't just Paul who felt this way. We saw in our reading before the sermon that Peter also wrote to a group of local churches saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, King Jesus, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then he says it this way, super clear, once... You were not a people. Now, you are God's people. Once, you had not received mercy, but now, you have received mercy. Again, church, he's not just writing this to individuals, but to local church communities just like ours. So simply put, the New Testament has no category for a disciple of Jesus Christ who is not also a committed member of a local church. And and when I say that, please don't mishear me to say this is all about Redemption Church. Actually, very little to do with just Redemption Church. Uh, Please don't just get excited about our vision for this. That's That's not what this is about. Frankly, this would be just as relevant if you moved away to another city, state, or country. And it will be no less true and no less relevant if in 20 years from now, God forbid, this church completely implodes. This is about God's work of redemption. Jesus did not die simply to redeem a bunch of individuals, but to deliver us, sinners like us, out of our sinful self-absorption and into a new heavenly family. This is an important part of our identity. And so finally, I want to encourage us to consider together, how is your relationship with God's family? How is it? Today, you'll notice in our series, we're considering who we are. Next week, we will consider what we do. Uh, The following week, we will consider how we do it. Um, But in all of this, I'm, I'm convinced it's just very important for us to answer this question very clearly. Who exactly is part of this we Uh, If this whole heavenly family thing is real, if this is something that God himself is creating, then it it really matters that we know who is part of it with us and who is not. And so when I say we, to be clear, I am referring at this point to the 106 people who have professed their faith in Christ with us and committed to following him together in all of life. We call them members. We believe that commitment right there is a starting point even for our discipleship. It's not like a, again, varsity thing, starting point. Now, to some of you, I, I totally realize that may seem maybe a bit exclusive or inward. Well, shouldn't Christians be more concerned about reaching the lost? And to that, I would say absolutely we are. But I think it's relevant to ask, reaching them with what and for what purpose? Our aim is to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might become brothers and sisters in this eternal heavenly family with us. So th- this is not a family about our self-righteousness, and this is not a family about, for religious, self-righteous people to prove that they are religious and self-righteous. No, this is a family of sinners redeemed by the grace and mercy of God. And so we want to say all are welcome. We pray that many, many more would join us But there is only one way into this family, 
And it is by repentance, faith, and a new life of following Jesus together. To some, this vision of membership may just seem intimidating. You guys seem to take this stuff really seriously. Uh, Commitment is hard. Uh, What if I just kind of lose interest or something goes wrong for some reason? Um, Some of you here, I think, may need some different pastoring. Some of you may need some encouragement in these ways. Uh, Others of you may need to be a bit challenged in these ways. So I'm going to do my best to do both of those things. Uh, But we're going to start with those of you who might need to be challenged. Here I have in view a little bit more seasoned, mature Christians. You know your Bible. You've been walking with Jesus for a while. To you, I would say, following Jesus is incredibly costly. I I just want to make sure we have that same task in view. It's incredibly costly. And if joining a church seems like a bit too much for you, I think you have to strongly consider, are you really up for this? Are you really up for this? Have you really lost your life for the sake of this resurrected king? If being part of a church is too much of an inconvenience, being expected to be at the service, maybe use your gifts and serve in some way, meaningfully connect, disciple others, care for them, pray for them, if that's too much, can you really say that you love your brother, as we're, saying, as we're told in 1 John, if you're not really particularly interested in the family? In this case, you probably need to stop finding excuses and start taking God's family more seriously. God's son had to die so that we could have this fellowship. It is well worth our time and our attention. So that will do for the challenge, okay? Um, Now, some of you are sincerely terrified uh, of this kind of fellowship because you've tried it before, maybe, for example, and you've been hurt, uh, badly hurt even. Or maybe it is. It's just, it, it is a, it's a lot for you to take in. Uh, it's, maybe it's a new, these, these are new concepts for you. To you, I would say, take all the time that you need to consider this, and we are happy to walk with you every step of the way, however long that takes. I want to be really clear. We value this, and at the same time, we want no one to feel like they are being moved in this direction by us and not of their own volition. That's never going to go well. But I will encourage you in this way. I want you to encourage you to make your decision in this area based on faith in Jesus, not on the fear of man or your own insecurities in life. I'll be honest, I mean, if the gospel were not true, if Jesus were not worth following, please hear me, I would really have no interest in being part of a local church. I love you guys. You're great. We're awesome friends here. There's a lot of fun stuff to do in the world, okay? I'm a pastor. But the gospel is true. King Jesus is worth following. And more than that, he has shed his own blood to make all of us part of his body. And therefore, let's be a people whose identity is bound up together as a spiritual family. At Redemption, we've all been swept up into this incredible plan of redemption. Uh, We have been captivated and, and cleansed and renewed by the message of the gospel. We have been called to deny ourselves and follow King Jesus. We have been gathered together into his heavenly family. And all of these things 
have radically changed who we are. We are a gospel-centered family of disciples. And church, I think in his wisdom, this is part of why Christ ordained this particular worship practice for us. Since the very beginning of the gospel, his people have been taking bread and drinking this, this juice, wine, in, in remembrance of him to bring us back time and time again to this message of his death and his resurrection as a tangible way even to express our desperate need for what he purchased for us on the cross, that we would never forget his body and his blood. And with that in mind, if you're here today, and this is just sort of a New Year's resolution thing for you, you're just checking this out, take your time, okay? Uh, We're thrilled you're here. We want you to keep coming back, but I actually want to insist you not take this meal with us uh, because it is vital that we are saying in taking this meal, we are saved in Christ and Christ alone is absolutely vital. And it's also vital, I think, that this meal is part of what binds us together as the body, as we partake together. And so with that said, join me as I pray, and then in just a minute you could take, come up and grab your elements and we will we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, be with us this year. Be with us even now as we proclaim the Lord's death longing for his return. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the blood he shed. We thank you, God, that you are a merciful, gracious, and holy God. We bow before you now, and we cling to your son. Be honored as we do in Jesus' name. Amen.